Yeah, so this is the opioid version. So just to refresh our listeners about the case, we have Miss um, Lee, who's a 56-year-old female with a history of localized breast cancer, um, diagnosed five years ago, and she was treated with a lumpectomy, radiation therapy to the breast, and um, just completed her adjuvant hormonal therapy, which is usually a five-year course. She was shoveling the snow, and she noted this back pain. So we did our initial history, um, and we were planning to pursue some investigations, and we decided based on the clinical features that this was a combination of somatic and neuropathic pain. So I guess the first question is how would we manage this person's pain pharmacologically uh, while we're doing, waiting for the results of our investigations? Mm-hmm. What would be our first line treatment, I guess, if we had one choice, one option? Well, the pain's 7 out of 10. So for me, that puts her in severe pain, uh, which means we need to start with a strong opioid. Yeah. So we're not going to fiddle around with Tramacet or Tylenol 3s. Allison's favorite Tramacet. <laughs> that is another episode. That's another episode. Oh, we're going to have a Why not to use Tramacet? Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. You versus <laughs> I wasn't going to tell her that I was going <laughs> to spring it on her. <laughs> Doing my research. Um, yes, a strong opioid. Yeah, morphine, hydromorphone, something like that. So effect. not codeine. No, for I our learners coding. out there, not coding that would be considered a weak opioid. Right? Yes, it would be. As yeah. would and the problem with coding too is like so many people in the population don't have the enzyme to even metabolize it into True. morphine, mm-hmm. and then you may as well just be giving them water. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Classic. Two D six. Crazy. Yeah. So generally avoid it. Letters and numbers. So what are our options in Canada for strong opioids? We have morphine, hydromorphone. We have fentanyl, we have methadone, oxycodone, 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 yeah. Um, Those are our usual suspects. Yeah, buprenorphine. Don't use, yeah, what would you consider? Dimipardine? Yeah, we're not allowed to use that. Would you consider buprenorphine? A strong strong? Uh, the doses we have in Canada are considered almost more of a weak Yeah, I feel like this is an advanced topic for sure. Yes, it is. And most we of the palliative that. care providers don't, I, I personally don't feel that comfortable prescribing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's uh, it's an opioid with special characteristics, mm-hmm. shall we say? Yeah. Rather than being a pure mu opioid agonist. Okay, so um, you guys, out of the, that um, list of opioids that we have to choose from, how do you choose which opioid to introduce first to the patient? I think to keep it simple, we could just say we'll, we would start with morphine. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about that. She's younger, so she's not elderly. Um, There's no contraindications, like no. renal insufficiency. Mm-hmm. Hyper like allergies or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, and she's opioid naive too. Like we, there's no way we could start her on a fentanyl patch when someone's yeah. opioid naive, right? There's Absolutely. they would Absolutely. just get way too much fentanyl that yeah. doesn't go down to those low doses. So she doesn't have any right, swallowing issues or digestive issues. So they, so she can take pills. Yeah, yeah, she can take pills. Yeah, and the rule of thumb for fentanyl that I tell learners is you want around sixty to ninety MEDD morphine equivalent daily doses so when you're around the 90 milligram morphine daily dose ballpark then you can start thinking about fentanyl if you need to but we don't really have a need to think about fentanyl right now no it can be more costly in some areas it can be um, drug coverage can be an issue they want you trying a few different things before you found fentanyl often yeah so we're okay with starting with morphine it sounds like yeah yeah Yeah. morphine Mm -hmm. it is 
Okay, here's the question. Is she okay with it? Um, I often have patients, even um, more so in the recent uh, few years, who are very worried when I mention an opioid, given the media coverage of the opioid crisis. Yep. They are worried about addiction. They are worried about starting it too early and it not being useful. Uh, once their pain gets worse, perhaps, they're worried that it means they're dying. Um, they can worry, be worried about their safety if other people know that they're on opioids. Uh, I was asked today if they'd withdraw from the opioid if we stopped it. So Another thing that I hear sometimes from people is they worry that if they treat their pain now, that when it gets more severe, there won't be any options left yep. for them mm-hmm. to treat it as well. Yeah. All very common fears. Yeah. So I think the first step is obviously to address those fears and kind of... Um, some of them are certainly valid, especially mm-hmm. in some, some situations. So so we have to do some risk stratification as well, especially around opioid risk and if people are at high risk of addictions or or diversion and, and things like that. So, What do you guys say to the person who is at low? Because often the person who's worried about addiction is the person you're least worried yeah, about. Yes. Exactly. Um, they're very low risk for addiction. But how do you address that concern given the media coverage and the opioid crisis and the fact that, uh, you know, as a physician group, I think people would say, you know, Canadian physicians as a whole have pushed a lot of opioids into the population. So have you changed how you address that concern? I think that's a really important question. I think the evidence suggests that um, a lot of our a significant proportion of our patient population may be at higher risk if you look at the opioid risk tool. So there's two um, studies that I can think of, and, and we can maybe um, list these in our show notes. Yeah, um, and you mentioned the opioid risk tool, which is kind of like the screening tool we use exactly. to identify people who are maybe at higher risk of misusing opioids. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a patient questionnaire called the opioid risk tool that is used to stratify um, risk when prescribing opioid medications. Um, It's not validated for the palliative care population specifically, but more generally um, in in pain medicine. The opioid risk tool categorizes people based on their score. So a zero to three score is considered low risk, four to seven is considered moderate risk, and eight or greater is considered high risk. There's certain questions that are asked in terms of your personal history um, of, for example, alcohol use, um, mental health. Family history as well. Family history as well. Even age and and, gender. um, Gender as well. Absolutely are considered, you know, so so being younger age is considered more of a risk factor, for example. Being male is considered more of a risk factor. Mm -hmm. The one issue I have, and I don't know if this is a valid issue, but it's one thing that I get hung up on, is the question about um, pre-adolescent sexual abuse. And I feel that that could be challenging for some people who are traumatized from that to take off on their first visit with me. Yeah, they're already dealing with with a cancer diagnosis. Yeah, so that's one issue I have. The other issue I have is, what the heck am I going to do with it? Like, even if they score high... And even if they break a contract with me, am I going to deny a person with a life-threatening illness and severe pain analgesics? Absolutely. No. Absolutely. Absolutely not. Absolutely. I'm, I'm agreeing with yeah. you. Sorry, that's a dead Jody. No pain meds yeah. for them. Yeah. Because no. the, yeah, the typical practice in a non-palliative setting is to have a contract. And if you mm-hmm. break the rules, you're done, right? Yeah. 
we can't do that. It's just no. I, we I can't guess we do that, but I, I think to do point, other things. Yeah, like maybe maybe not give them like a month long prescription exactly. at a time. They're, maybe I'll give them like a week at a time. Okay. Or you so harm one over the other. Yeah, you know, like a patch over pills. Maybe so avoid short acting medicines as much. Like absolutely, yeah. but you're not gonna. Yeah, you're yeah. not gonna deny them their payments. So yeah. it might impact like how you prescribe it as opposed to whether you prescribe it. Something like that. Maybe. No, those yeah. are really good yeah. points. Yeah. So, how often do you guys use this risk tool? <laughs> mm, embarrassed silence. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can count on one hand. Probably. Yeah. How many times I've yeah, used it? But my guess is in your head, you're doing a bit of a calculation. Yeah. Thinking about some of those risk factors, yeah. yeah. I do, but it's not a systematic approach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, I'll talk about, there's been two studies that have looked at in outpatient palliative care settings, um, they've actually used the opioid risk tool. So one was based out of the University of Virginia. Um, and the other, I'm not actually sure, somewhere else in the U.S. But basically, they used the opioid risk tool on all patients that came into their clinic for certain periods of time. And these were palliative care clinics, mostly cancer patients. Both studies, um, and these were retrospective chart reviews, so with all the limitations of those in mind. Um, but both studies found in the mid-40s um, so 40-something percent of their population had a moderate to high um, risk score on the opioid risk tool. Hmm. So that's a fairly significant number. And so that those studies, I think, and I know, Allison, you've looked at at least one of those studies in the past, and um, it's, it's, it's a reason to pause and think about why we don't use that tool maybe more often. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly in the old days before we had identified that we had an opioid crisis, we simply told patients that, well, you you know, you're not uh, looking at this pain medicine for euphoria and therefore you won't get addicted and, you know, we're giving it for cancer pain so our patients don't get addicted and, you know, I think we have um, tempered our um, view on that a little bit, and we realize now that people come to cancer with all the background that uh, our population has. Mm-hmm. Some people come with a history of addictions, and uh, some people will use these drugs for um, purposes other than uh, the pain control completely, but I think at least being more aware, and yeah, I think it's a really interesting question about whether we should be you know, using a screening tool versus just that old physician thing where we say, well, we do it, you know, ourselves and, mm-hmm. and thinking that therefore we're consistent. Yeah, and we have some physicians within our palliative care group in Calgary who have a special interest and expertise around addictions um, in the palliative care population. And so we're going to be having them on for a separate podcast as well. So stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. All right, so we're starting morphine. We are. What are you how guys gonna start how much with? are we starting? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask mm-hmm. you. <laughs> hmm. It's interesting because I, as a consultant, I'm not often seeing them and prescribing the first opioid. Right? I never so. see that. <laughs> but what's the teaching? Like typically, we say 2.5 to mm-hmm. 5 milligrams PO Q4H around the clock, and then you want to use a breakthrough dose. Mm-hmm. What do you tell your learners about the breakthrough dose? Well, I guess back up. So actually, sometimes I just have them using it as needed. Uh, so starting or, off with the yeah, PRN. Start, I, yeah, I don't have them using it around the clock. But then I'll bring them back within the week to find out how much they've needed. Oh, interesting. Yeah. For me, it's about severity and frequency. So if somebody's having 7 out of 10 pain um, most of the day, 
then I probably would start them on something scheduled and then have a breakthrough dose as well. Mm-hmm. But the breakthrough dose, there's um, no consensus in the literature. So when I'm talking about the breakthrough dose, I'm talking about the as-needed or the mm-hmm. PRN dose. between Right. So yeah. learners sometimes struggle with that because different preceptors will have a different approach mm-hmm. to the breakthrough. Um, so my approach, which might not be agreed upon by all, definitely, is I like to have a range on my breakthrough mm-hmm. dose. Oh, yeah. Me too. Yeah. I don't know what dose, right? So um, there's a retrospective study done. I believe it was an Italian study. This is like years ago now, and I'll have to dig it out and see if I can <laughs> figure out the, the citation. But it was they did this retrospective study to see what proportion of the t- total daily opioid dose was successful as a breakthrough dose. And they found it varied widely for something like 2 to 50%. But... Mm-hmm. You know, and it's been a few years, as I say, since I read that study. But the point is, there's a huge range um, in terms of what might be successful. So I like to have that range dose. The teaching, though, is somewhere between one-tenth to one-sixth of the total opioid dose. So that's the total daily dose. The total daily opioid dose, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's right. Yeah, and the way I uh, think of that one is it's a rule of thumb, so it gives you something to start with, the mm-hmm. 10% of total daily dose, but the acid test is you got to go back to the patient Absolutely. later that day, you know, call them the next day and find out if it worked, because if it works, then it's the right breakthrough dose. If it didn't last for long enough, it's too little. If it made them drowsy and they fell asleep for five hours, it's too much. So you just have to titrate to the individual's Absolutely. response to Agreed. So we've decided on the morphine then. So morphine 2.5 PO Q4H and... Yeah, I would say... What, what's your range? So we're starting pretty low in this case. Um, it, it also depends on the environment, like the um, clinical setting. So mm-hmm. if we're assuming this person's seeing her family doc and is going home... I would maybe be a little bit more conservative in my approach versus like on our palliative care Absolutely. unit where we have really experienced nurses and people are coming in with refractory pain often. Yeah, yeah and they're being monitored closely. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. exactly. Um, in this case, I might do anything from 2.5 to 5, actually. Yeah. Ev- up to every two hours as needed. Yeah. Um, but I have a close follow-up as an outpatient. Yeah. Somebody who's opioid naive. Nelson? Talking to the patient about recording their breakthrough pain, breakthrough doses when they mm-hmm. take them. Mm-hmm. Um, those are my favorite patients who come in with their notebook just full of... Our engineering patients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you guys tell them in terms of side effects? Oh, side effects, yes. That's always the problem with opioids because mm-hmm. no matter which one you use, they're always that risk of side effects like you know nausea... Vomiting is pretty common, especially when they first start them, but that seems to kind of wear off after a little bit of time for yeah. for some people. I think that's important to tell the patient. Yeah. Like, it's amazing how many times you see on allergies, patients' allergies, it's like morphine, GI distress. And you're right. Like, no, sorry. Yeah. And the so nausea I, wears off sometimes, but the constipation doesn't. Yes. So that's something that's important to stay on top of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've read that 30% of patients will get nausea when you initiate opioids. And so one of the questions is, do you give them an anti-nauseant and just tell them to take it? Or do you give them an anti-nauseant and 
tell them it's there to fill if they do feel nauseated, mm-hmm. knowing that it'll probably go away in a day or two. Yeah. And it really depends, I guess, on what's causing the nausea, because sometimes the opioids, they cause nausea just from the, I guess, the, the medication's effect. Um, but sometimes it can also induce an ileus, like it just reduces the motility mm-hmm. of the stomach yeah. and the bowel, and so then they get nauseous from that. So, Or they can so, have associated nausea, like yeah. people who have visceral pain, it might be associ- mm-hmm. associated with some nausea, for example. Yeah, um, so it really depends on the person in terms of whether they get nausea and how long it lasts. Mm-hmm. And I think just even just letting them know that this will likely go away is probably... <laughs> but we're hedging. We're hedging. Mm. That's just a question, and we're avoiding it. You are. <laughs> so... I think it ideally when I'm being sharp clinically <laughs> and on the on the ball, I would give them a PRN anti-emetic. I don't I don't prefer to give them a scheduled one. I think I'm cognizant of minimizing um, pill burden and also you know everything. Nothing is benign in pharmacology. Yeah, so all the anti-emetics have yeah, side effects exactly, as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I favor a PRN. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we yeah. can talk about anti-emetics and nausea in another episode as well. But we can talk about it ad nauseum. That's why I'm here, guys. <laughs> we need to have sound effect buttons. All right, how about let's all chant together: the hand that writes the, the opioid is the hand, hand that writes the laxative. An alternative one. The hand that writes the opioid and causes constipation is the hand that <laughs> disempowers the <laughs> patient. <laughs> and this is why I'm a pharmacist. <laughs> Thank you, Amani. <laughs> this is why I'm here, folks. So, all to say, and again, um, hopefully this is not the first time uh, people have heard this, but... Um, um, the side effect of constipation does not go away and it can be extremely serious for patients. Um, so we must insist that patients start a laxative when they're starting a regular opioid. And I'm sure we can all think of one or two patients who've been managed on opioids and not used laxatives, but it is rare. rare. It's very rare. People And people get very intense about their bowels. They know their routine and they know when they're off. Yeah. And it is very important to them. But one thing I find is that patients sometimes need careful education about what these laxatives are doing. Yes. And I pitch it as this is preventative and maintenance. Mm -hmm. This is not fixing any constipation because people will say, I'm not constipated right now. Mm -hmm. First of all, that's a whole rabbit hole and probably we'll have another episode about (laughs) constipation and what people understand as constipation or not. But um, I find like I'm telling them, great, you're not constipated right now. Let's take these medicines so you don't get constipated Mm -hmm. as a maintenance. Yeah, and I think the other point being lots of people have been told, you know, that it's not good to take a laxative regularly and we need more fiber and we need to drink more, but just educating the patient that these drugs basically slow your bowel down and it's not a question of eating more fiber and drinking more water. Agreed. Especially depending on the clinical context, that can be a... Yeah, the fiber can actually be (laughs) Yeah. So, favorite laxative, Jody, that you would recommend to give with opioids? Well, we usually do the cocktail of uh, polyethylene glycol, 3350, and... Nerd! I get to call you nerd this time. Well, I'm not supposed to use brand name. There you go. (laughs) Oh. Some peg and some senna is a good combo. 
I personally, I do not like peg. I, I, they say you can't taste it. I can taste it, and it's gross. Mm. Is it like but chalky really or something? Though? It's like metal. It's <laughs> metallic. We're raising our eyebrows. No, it's true. <laughs> but, so I always counsel my patients that they can no, put I've had in whatever they want. Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah. You put in your coffee or your juice. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So that's my cocktail. Okay. What's your cocktail? Same. 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 Yeah, I like that that combination as well and then another side effect sometimes people can get pruritus or like itchiness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. especially with morphine sometimes because it causes histamine release so yeah opiate naive patients yeah. right so people yeah. who aren't accustomed to it mm-hmm. yeah do you find that goes away for the most part mm-hmm. and i think when we talk about um you know uh when we talk about putting in neuraxial analgesia so epidural or spinal analgesia that's more likely to happen the pruritus but it can happen definitely with yeah. oral or IV subcutaneous. And I do find most people become tolerant, kind tolerant. of, yeah. Yeah, they get yeah. over that symptom, yeah. I've seen some more extreme cases, but for the most part. And what about driving? What do you tell patients when you're starting them? So when I'm starting somebody on opioids, I will say for the first couple of days, um, maybe avoid driving until you see how you acclimate to these new medicines. And also if I'm making a drastic change in dose or if I'm rotating, it's the same spiel. Yeah, and that's based again in what we know about the tolerance uh, that people develop to opioid side effects. So in general, I warn them that they may feel drowsy the first day or two on a regular opioid. But then they'll get tolerant to that, and that's why they're they're general okay to drive after those first couple days because the drowsiness is gone. And there's actually studies that have shown that people drive better on opioids if their pain is controlled because they're not distracted by the pain. Oh, cool. Yeah. Makes sense. I like that. So those are, I guess, some of the common side effects and then other things just for families especially to be aware of if people are getting too much opioid they can get things like um, respiratory depression Mm -hmm. or confusion um, kind of that opioid neurotoxicity type picture as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have the narcosis and the, not, and the tox- neurotoxicity, right? Yeah, so narcosis is overdose, and that happens within you know minutes to hours of taking too much opioid. But opioid neurotoxicity is the breakdown of uh, metabolic products that enter your brain, and that usually takes a few days. So different timing for each of those. Totally, and problems. narcosis is a because too much opioid agonist, right? And so it's because of that parent drug causing the respiratory sedation, the slowing of the respiratory rate, and the meiosis, that's a classic triad, that, and sorry, the reduced uh, level of consciousness is the classic triad that we see, and we fix it with... Naloxone. Naloxone, but we can't fix neurotoxicity with naloxone, right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that picture of neurotoxicity is a person who is often... Um, very unfocused when you're talking to them, um, so they have some inattention. They can also appear drowsy, um, but then you know if if you miss those early signs of neurotoxicity, then you'll have someone who's frankly confused and uh, myoclonic, hallucinating, and has hyperalgesia of all 
things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with that opioid neuro- neurotoxicity, sometimes people can get really confused and think they're having more pain and then and then tell doctors and nurses that they're in pain and then they get more opioids and then that worsens the neurotoxicity. So it's something we always have to be yeah, kind of cycle. watching out for. Yeah. Guess what? Miss Lee has these symptoms. We've got around 2.5 milligrams Q4H and they've got around a range of 2.5 to 5 Q2HPRN. Mm-hmm. We follow up with her in about a week. Mm-hmm. And she's using on average five doses of the 2.5 milligrams. She says it's for breakthrough pain, kind of not episodically, instant. but not, yeah, not with particular movements or like predictable activities. It just seems to happen. So. What do we do at that point? Well, to me, five breakthroughs in a day is, I would consider that too much. What I usually um, educate my patients on is about three in a day is fairly normal for most people. Um, You are going to expect some of that breakthrough pain. Um, You're never going to, like, never have breakthrough pain. Um, So I would consider titrating up from there. Um, Okay. Just to try and reduce that amount of breakthroughs she's having to take in a day. Yeah, and so then we would just calculate the total amount of opioid she's using in a day and recalculate that at the Q4H interval. Exactly. Exactly. So based on her usage of her schedule plus her breakthrough dose, she's on 27.5 milligrams of morphine total per day. Okay. If... If we divide that by six, it's about four point six milligrams. You could round up to five yeah. if you still if there's no adverse effects, and just say now she's on five milligrams every four hours scheduled. Okay. If her breakthrough dose is working reasonably well, as in it's lasting three four hours, she's finding good pain control. You could keep it at that dose. If not, um, going back to your point, Allison, we want to always evaluate what the breakthrough dose is doing and if it's not helpful we want to increase that breakthrough dose as well mm-hmm. let's say for simplicity's sake she does well on five milligrams every four hours and she's not using very much in the way perhaps you know a couple of breakthrough doses a week mm-hmm. uh, sorry a couple of breakthrough doses in the week after mm-hmm. she doesn't have any major side effects what would you do at that point i would try to make life a little bit easier for her and i try and get her on a controlled release yeah, yeah so she doesn't have to like take pills every four hours especially you know in the middle of the night exactly absolutely um usually the controlled release are about 12 hours so she gets to take one in the morning one at night yeah and then you're you're basically just um taking that same total daily dose and dividing it by two instead of the six exactly Mm -hmm. and then you'd keep the breakthrough the prn as needed doses absolutely right yeah yeah what have we got around 15 q12 okay of the long acting. Of the long acting. Mm-hmm. Great. So Ms. Lee does well on that for a little while. What? Dun dun dun. She's got Case update. thinking, twitching, and a reduced short term memory. How did this happen? Well, do you want to know? I do. Her EGFR has dropped. She's mm-hmm. got a bit of renal insufficiency. Her but it's the chicken and the egg, right? Like, True. yeah. What True. do you mean? Well, I mean, I think when people have toxicity, if they have delirium, they might not be maybe hydrating as well, and that can cause the renal insufficiency. Or does she have renal insufficiency from some other cause, and then yeah, like that's maybe driven her, her, her disease is progressing and compressing right. the kidney or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm, we got a problem. We do. What are we going to do about it? Has she increased her opioid as well, or is she just... In her case, her pain progressively gets worse, and so she increases her breakthrough dosage more and more. Um, unfortunately, she starts to experience these, the classical symptoms of opioid neurotoxicity, some of which we've talked about. So the twitching, which we call myoclonus, the confusion, the day-night reversal. So she's starting to have some of the early signs of delirium, short-term memory problems. Um, yeah, and she does have this paradoxical worsening of pain. So what I mean by that is we're increased, she's increasing her morphine, but... Um, her pain is not getting better, but in fact, it feels worse, and it's starting to. She's starting to have more diffuse, generalized pain. Mm. Pain all over. Mm-hmm. So, how do we manage opioid-induced neurotoxicity? Well, I think we have to get her off the morphine. But she's having pain, so we need to still give her something. Absolutely. Yeah. We need to rotate. Rotate? Do you mean like, you know, twirling the morphine pills in yeah. a cup or something? Yeah. yeah. That's what Jody does. So I do like to dance. So let's be honest. Yeah. So I, one of our nurses, uh, our clinical nurse specialist, Erin Forsyth, taught me this a long time ago. And she teaches her learners palliate, sorry, rotate, palliate, and hydrate. Mm. Well, that's how, and I, I like that little RPH jingle. I don't know. Anyway, so you, you rotate the opioid, so you want to rotate to another opioid. Um, and you palliate if necessary. For example, if there is a full-on, fulminant neurotoxicity where there's an agitated delirium, then you might want to use something like neuroleptics or sedating medicines and hydrating. Um, if a patient can't tolerate good oral hydration or is not reliable in taking oral hydration, then you want to give IV or even subcutaneous hydration. Yeah, so often if they're getting into this pattern, sometimes it can be managed at home with palliative home care. Oftentimes people do need to come into hospital. Mm -hmm. That's usually when we see them. Yeah. And so opioid neurotoxicity is one cause of delirium and again, another episode, we'll probably talk about delirium in a... a So much to talk about. (laughs) There is. So we decide to rotate Miss Lee to, um, to fentanyl. Yeah, because at this point she's on kind of the higher dose range of the morphine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And opioid rotation is a whole other talk unto itself. I don't think we need to get into the weeds right no. now. But we rotate her to fentanyl. She doesn't have a full-on agitated delirium, so we don't really feel the need to start on neuroleptics. And, you know, neuroleptics is another contentious issue, so mm-hmm. we prefer to avoid that. And we give her some IV hydration. So a few days later, she has um, clearer thinking, and her pain is better resolved. It's, it's better. Uh, sorry, her pain is improved. <laughs> Words. Yeah. Her pain she does is good. <laughs> So I guess we've talked about a lot of stuff. Um, As a summary of all that, there's the common strong opioids in Canada, which are morphine, hydromorphone, oxycodone, and then when people are getting to kind of the more complex pain or requiring a large amount, you can think about fentanyl and methadone um, as well. And the idea really is when you're starting out, start with low doses and titrate up based on the use of breakthrough medications and um, remembering the common side effects of 
constipation and nausea. So always have everyone uh, who's on opioids on a laxative and then PRN antiemetics. And then um, watching out and making sure the families are watching out for really those those um, more serious side effects like narcosis and opioid-induced neurotoxicity. And um, when those things happen, managing them either very carefully at home but more commonly in hospital so yeah thanks Amanda I wonder if we want to have a quick conversation it can be completely edited if we don't want to just about the use of naloxone and if you guys ever recommend having a naloxone kit in the home Mm. with my argument being sometimes a family will see opioid-induced um, neurotoxicity and give naloxone and send a patient into a huge pain crisis. Right. Yeah. Could but be a topic for another time. It's how just do, find it interesting. Yeah. How do you counsel patients and families around that? Um, you know, it's not often them that, that ask me about it. It's often the community pharmacy that asks because I am sending large doses of opioid home. Mm-hmm. Um, and they ask if they should send a naloxone kit with it. I haven't had too many conversations. Um, I remember having one with Russ, one of our doctors, a little while ago, who does a lot of home care and sees, you know, um, a lot of death in the home. And he has seen where patients or where families actually see the dying process and think it is an overdose. Yeah, that is my concern in that setting. And that's usually how I kind of talk to the pharmacy about it. Um, it's not always appropriate in our situations, but I don't know. It's a yeah, it's a, it's tough a good one. topic to discuss. Something to think about. To me, it's in that same yeah. kind of area of thought as when we're talking about the opioid risk tool as mm-hmm. well. That perhaps yeah. if somebody is higher risk, then maybe we should be we, can, we should be considering that. Yeah. The other mm-hmm. argument is you may want to have one in the home for the family or for the caregivers, oh. especially if you're doing fentanyl patches or things where you can accidentally. Um, get the patch onto yourself or get some of that into your own system. That I understand. But I think it's a lot of counseling with the patient and the families about what narcosis looks like versus opioid-induced neurotoxicity versus dying. Yeah. And we're fortunate in Calgary to have uh, palliative home care available for families and patients to be able to contact and ask Mm -hmm. questions in terms of what, what they're noticing and the given some advice in terms of how to manage that yes. some patients and families don't access them right away they're kind of just in panic mode right exactly yeah so it's yeah it's a tough tough question well we fixed her all right the end although i guess at this point we've only really addressed mostly the nociceptive part of her pain because opioids yeah. are great for nociceptive not mm-hmm. so great all the time for neuropathic pain so what a great segue, Amanda. What a great segue. <laughs> to our next episode, which we'll be talking about how to manage with adjuvant analgesics. Stay tuned. Can't wait. We hope you enjoyed our episode today. We'd like to extend a special thank you to Zahid Damani for producing and editing our episodes, as well as for our beautiful website, Kasim Harani for the music, and Nishan Sharma for all of his support getting us up and running. Thank you also to our financial sponsor, Dr. Srini Chari. If you liked this episode, please let us know by clicking like and subscribing to our podcast. You can find It's Not All About Death on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform for podcasts. 
You can also find our episodes and connect with us anytime by visiting our website at itsnotallaboutdeath.com or on Instagram at itsnotallaboutdeath.com.